I saw something in uh, Revelation in John's description of Jesus. And as I took and looked really close and paid attention to exactly how he described him, I started to see some things that I had never really seen before. So we're going to get Revelations uh, 1, verse number 12. And my topic is the Lord's passport. Before I get into this, I want to just read something that I pulled information about the passport. A passport is a document issued by a national government which certifies for the purpose of international travel, the identity and nationality of its holder. The elements of identity are name, date of birth, sex, and place of birth. Most often, nationality and citizenship are congruent. A passport does not of itself entitle the passport holder entry into another country, nor to consular protection while abroad or any other privileges in the absence of any special agreements which cover the situation. It does, however, normally entitle the passport holder to return to the country that issued the passport. Rights to the consular protection arise from international agreements and the right to return arises from the laws of the issuing country. A passport does not represent the right or the place of residence or the passport holder in the country that issued the passport. The thing that I thought was interesting about the passport is not only does it give you entrance into all of the other countries abroad and around the world, but it gives you, clears you back to enter into the country that you originated from. So this is what I see in Jesus. Uh, Revelation 1, verse number 12. John says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. So I took all of these characteristics and things that John took note of for the visible manifestation of God in this text. And I noticed that everything that John describes is a signature or a stamp on the Lord's passport as to where he's been throughout time. And we can trust that since he's been through all of these situations, that he's going to also be there for us when we are in need of him. All right, so let's look to where where he's been. John says that he has um, on his garment and the sash around the chest um there's three things three people that wore the garment it was the judge the priest and the prophet but the sash brings in the fact that he was the high priest the hebrew writer mentioned six times that jesus was ordained to be our eternal high priest forever after the order of melchizedek all right and those are found in hebrews five and six Uh, also verse 10 and then chapter 6 verse 20 
and then chapter 7, verses 11, 17, and 21. And uh, kind of like the similarities that we had of uh, Moses last night, we also have of, of uh, Melchizedek, one that appears in the Old Testament as the high priest, but we don't know where he came from or where he went. So uh, that can also be tied to Jesus having no uh, earthly uh, father. All right, so he starts with his hair. And then we'll go back at, uh, toward the end and then we'll get John's, what his mindset was when he received all of this. He says that his hair was white as snow. It was white and hoary or hairy. It was uh, woolly hair. Daniel chapter 7, verse number 9 says, I watched as thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days, the Almighty God, sat down to judge. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair like white as wool. He sat upon a fiery throne, brought in on flaming wheels, and a river of fire flowed from before him. Millions of angels ministered to him, and hundreds of millions of people stood before him, waiting to be judged. Then the court began its session, and the books were open. So from this white hair, Daniel gets that he is the ancient of days. All right, Proverbs talks about the white hair. Proverbs 16 and 31 says that white hair is a crown of glory and is seen most among the godly. So John is showing us that this is an aged Christ. He's had experience. And we should really trust uh, and learn from those that have experience, whether that experience is good or bad. We can learn from all types of experience that people have gone through. And um, I used to like having conversations with my grandmother because I knew that she could put a spin on things in a perspective that, you know, probably it's, living in my day, I probably wouldn't understand it. So I used to like to talk to her. I like talking to my aunt and, and uh, all those that have gone through some things in life. Then he moves to his eyes. He says that his eyes were blazing like fire. Now, if you look into somebody's eyes, if you're close enough, you can actually see a reflection of what they're looking at from their eye. So from here, we look in his eyes and we see fire. Well, where has he been in the Bible where there was fire? One of the first things that comes to mind is the burning bush with Moses. When he called and, and used him to be one of the greatest deliverers of his people, he used fire, a burning bush that was not consumed. Another place he used fire was when he called, pulled and snatched Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah and rained down fire in the city. Revelation 2 and 18 says that his eyes are able to penetrate. So now this speaks of his justice and, and his righteousness that he is able to peer into and penetrate anything that he looks at and sees in you. I'd rather have God's fiery eyes look upon me and, and tell me what's wrong with me and show me where I'm lacking and what I have need of than to depend on other people who really don't know really what's in my heart. So fire is able to break down the strongest of metals. And only he is able to execute righteous judgment. Then we move on to his feet. His feet, he says, looks like they have been burning in the furnace. This is one of my favorite ones. 
If we go to uh, Daniel 3, verse number 24, it says, But suddenly, as he was watching, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, Did we throw three men into the furnace? Yes, they said, we did indeed, your majesty. Well, look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound walking around in the fire and they aren't even hurt by the flames. And the fourth one looks like a God or the King James says looks like the son of man. So here we see that John sees that his feet certainly were in the furnace with these three Hebrew boys. They, he had been there in the midst with them. And I don't think that he took the heat out of the flame. I think that he took the brunt of all the heat of the flame and allowed them to do no, uh, to feel nothing because the heat of the flame actually killed the the prison uh, the uh, officers that wanted to throw these three Hebrew boys into the furnace in the first place. So they were dropping dead as they were approaching the furnace for to throw the three Hebrew boys in there. But th once they got in there, nothing happened to them. But here we see that his feet actually took the brunt of the flames and it was actually heated seven times hotter than they usually did another place where we can see where his feet have been is the brazen altar where he danced on the sacrifice i talked about that at one of the other retreats i uh, don't have time to get into that next he talks about john mentions his voice he said it was the voice of many waters Psalm 29 and 3 says, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory, I'm sorry, the God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful and the voice of the Lord is majestic. Jeremiah 10 and 13 says, it is his voice that echoes in the thunder of the storm clouds. He causes mist to rise upon the earth. He sends the lightning and brings the rain. And from his treasuries, he brings the wind. His voice, many waters. Now, we could go a lot of places here. Number one, we could go back to Noah's day where he calls it the fountains of heaven and the fountains of the seas, both to open up on the great deluge when he flooded the entire earth. He was there. His voice spoke when the children of Israel reached the Red Sea. And he divided it into what some believe to be 12 sections. And the water stood up and they walked on dry ground. Then we see the children of uh, Israel again come to the River Jordan, where he also divided the waters and pushed it back as the priest's feet entered in. Another place we know where God spoke is the pool of Bethesda in the New Testament, where he troubled the water and the first one in was the one to get healed. And my favorite is the Holy Ghost. Water is one of the three natural wonders used to describe the Holy Ghost. He used water, he used wind, and he used fire. That's another whole thing I, I really wanted to get into, but I don't have time to tonight. So there are so many different types of water. We have rivers, we have seas, we have lakes, we have oceans, we have streams, and we have wells. But my favorite thing about water is when it rains. 
I have a, a patio that's, it's not wood. It's called aluma wood, but it, it's kind of an uh, aluminum type of material. But when it rains, it sounds so good. You could get some good rest when the rain is hitting that. So, but the thing I like about storms is, I think it's in the book of Job. He says that the Lord have his, has his way in the storm. The Lord is able to have his way in the storm. He is able to manipulate the wind, the rain. He can even manipulate fire in order to bring his will about in our lives. He has his way in the whirlwind. So then John says uh, about Jesus also that he held seven stars in his hand. Stars are made evident to give splendor to heaven when the sun is set. Or has withdrawn itself. You don't see stars in the daytime. You only see stars when the sun is not there. So Jesus came. And we know that at the end of the tribulation. He's going to be this, what's called the sun. S-U-N of righteousness. Rising up with healing in his wings. But right now while he's not there. We are the stars that are in his hand. We are the ambassadors for Christ. So we minister in his stead for people to be reconciled to God. So Christian ministers are stars and have therefore orbits assigned to them in which to move. The head of the church plants each one in his proper place within it. So just like God orchestrated the heavens, and it's amazing that with all these huge balls of fire out there, that everything is still intact and, and everything hasn't run into it, each other and just combusted into one big ball of fire is because God set everything in orbit. Every planet stays on its orbit. All the stars stay on their orbit. But we are the stars. So we need to stay in our orbit. I looked on the Internet and I actually looked up what happens when stars collide. There's two possibilities. When two of the same type of stars collide, they become one large star of the same kind. On the other hand, when you have different kinds of stars collide, many times the smaller star will start a shock wave with the more dense star, and it will superheat the bigger star and blast it into what the scientists would say smithereens. So it's very destructive. So we have to be very careful in our orbits that we stay in our place. And that if we are going to, uh, if God has somebody for us to join to for a certain amount of time, whether it's to minister to them, whether it's for them to minister to us, whether there needs to be a companionship out of that relationship, you need a friend or whatever, he's not going to send you a star that's going to cause you to, to uh, go into nothingness. He's going to cause a star that will assist you to become greater. He's not in the process of causing us to, to be destroyed. He that be, hath begun this work in you, he will do it until it's perfected. So it says these stars are in his right hand. But Jesus said that all that the Father's given me, they're in my hand, and no man can pluck them out. Which means that I'm actually the star. I know it's a Hollywood thing, but I'm a star. <laughs> really a star. 
and I'm in his hand. Also what's in his right hand, he has a rod and staff, he has the anointing oil, he has a sword, and he has the clay. Remember we talked about the wheels are still turning with the clay that's in his hand. Sometimes when we're in his hand, as he's molding and making us, we don't leave his hand and become marred, but we became marred right in his hand. Something happens sometimes while God's trying to deal with us, while he's trying to shape us, while he's trying to mold us, and things may happen to where, uh, for some reason, you just become marred in his hand. But the best thing is about that is at least you were in his hand when you became marred because he wasn't going to add insult to injury. He wasn't going to kick you while you were down. He was going to just take you back, put you back in the ball, and start shaping you all over again. But it, he said the second work was even greater than the first. We're in his hand. Next, John says, I saw a sword coming from his mouth. This sword is obviously the word of God that Christ came to deliver. The thing I noticed here was that the word proceeds from the mouth of the word. The greatest weapon that we have is God's word. The, the Bible calls it the sword of the spirit. Peter covered that in the armor, putting on the armor of God. If you take the word from us, we have nothing to fight with. We exist only to defend ourselves. So some of us, because we allowed the devil to rob us of our word, that was the only article in, what is that, Ephesians 6, that he gives us as an offense. Everything else is defense. But the only thing he gives us to attack the enemy is the word. If you take the word from us, we spend our time, all of our time, defending ourselves. So many of us have, have just soaked into this position of we're just defensive. It's all about the defense, never about the offense. It's a dangerous place to get to because you will, you will never be able to move forward in life. To move forward in life, you have to have some tenacity to move forward. You've got to have something that's going to cause the enemy to retreat. He's not just going to back up just because you got on the shoes shot with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You have to have the word in you and active in your life and you can't let it the enemy distort it for retreat after retreat we've been coming with scriptures and texts and chapters in the bible that were totally misconstrued and taken out of context misrepresented wrongly quoted and then we wonder why we have we're not backing the enemy up it's because our word has been tainted Back to the sword of the spirit. The word is called the sword of the spirit because it is dictated by the spirit. It is employed by the spirit. It is blessed by the spirit in its sweet and gracious influences. Because it is explained by the spirit, he that inspired it is the best and the only infallible expositor. So if you want to get an understanding of what the word can do for you, you have to go and allow God to exposit the word for you. He's the one that wrote it. Since he's the one that expired, nobody can, can explain it to you more than him. But you got to get in your word. Sometimes you got to become like Paul and say, everything that I've learned or I thought that I knew about the law, everything that I thought I knew about you, Lord, 
I count all that as dung. Now, he wasn't saying that he counted all of his life's experiences dung. To put that in context, we have to realize what he was saying. Everything that he talked about, his breed, that he, he was a, a Pharisee and that he was of the tribe of Benjamin and all of these things, <clears throat> these elitist positions and things that, that gave him status among his people, these are the things that he counted as dung and waste. So if you want to know really what the word means for you, what God wants to show you in his word, he is the one that inspired it. So it's up to you to connect with the spirit that created the word, that spoke the word, that inspired the word to be written down. He's the only one and he's the best expositor of that word. This word or this sword that came from his mouth is a two edged sword. Two-edge or double-edge is something that, ha that has or may have favorable and unfavorable consequences. So we always say, oh, the double-edged sword, it just cuts in and cuts going in and cuts going out. That's really not the meaning of that. What it is is that it has two different consequences to it. You can fall on the favorable side or you can fall on the unfavorable side of the sword. Okay, then John now moves to his feet. I'm sorry, to his face. He says that his face shined like the brightest sun. It was a brilliance there. We see at the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17 and 2 that as they watched, his appearance changed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothing became dazzling white. We see again that this brilliant face or this shining Jesus brighter than the noonday sun also appeared to Paul in Acts 9 and 3 says as we neared Damascus on his journey suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him Saul Saul why do you persecute me who are you Lord Saul asked I am Jesus whom you are persecuting he replied so this brilliant one that John sees, now we can look in the passport of the Lord and see, okay, he's been there before. He is, he is shine, outshined your darkest hour time after time after time. He's been throughout the Bible, and he always shines brighter than even the devil can transform his angels into. Because the devil's got tricks. The devil knows how to transform his ministers into ministers of light. And have you fooled? They sure sang. They sure brought the anointing. They, they sure preached. But because we, we were going on emotion and feeling and charisma, we failed to peer into really what was being said. The spirit of the thing. Believe not every spirit. Try it. God's travels. Micah 5 and 2 says, O Bethlehem, Euphrata, you are but a small Judean village, yet you will be the birthplace of my king, who is alive from everlasting ages past. So we see here that the going of the Lord has been from everlasting 
to everlasting. He is constantly on the move. He is never still. Even in the chaotic condition of Genesis 1 and 2, he says the spirit of the Lord moved upon the face of the waters. There was nothing for him to really manipulate or for him to have uh, an influence on because he hadn't created all the other stuff, but his spirit was moving. Even when you think that nothing's going on, God is actually moving. If we could sit down and be still enough and get in the spirit enough to realize, okay, Lord, what are you doing? It looks like nothing's happening, but something's going on. The spirit of the Lord has never been stagnant. He is never still. He is always doing something on behalf of what he created. His going too has been from everlasting. When he when the devil showed up and he asked the devil, where have you been? He said, I've been walking up and down the earth, seeking whom I may devour. I'm trying to trip somebody up. I'm trying to fool somebody. I'm trying to get somebody to twist your word, trying to get somebody to lose their faith in you. Do you think that the devil is the only one that busy walking up and down the earth? He's only trying to do what God is doing because he wants to be like God. That's the spirit of Antichrist. Because anti doesn't just mean against. It means in place of. So the devil gives you stuff to replace what God is supposed to fulfill in your life. And he'll fill it with all other kind of junk. That's the spirit of Antichrist. And he'll, he'll dress it up and make it look like God. He'll make it look religious. He'll make it look spiritual. He'll put a spiritual connotation to it. Every, the program is put on so to where you say, man, those are some lovely people. That's a lovely group of people. But the spirit behind it is not tried and tested and compared to the word of God. Because the devil wants to be like him. But God is moving. Trust me. He's moving way more and way faster than the devil can move. I'm going to back up. When I read Daniel 7 and 10, I'm sorry, 7 and 9, says, I watched as the thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days, the Almighty God, sat down to judge. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair like white as wool. He sat upon, listen to this, a fiery throne, which was brought in on flaming wheels. Now, when you think of a throne, you think of something that is stationary, something that does not move, something that is set because this kingdom is set in glory. But he says the God's throne had flaming wheels. So his throne has been in motion. As he is, he has come down and rode his throne. Who do you think the, the, the fire, the chariot of fire was that came and picked up a lot? It was God's throne. They caught Elijah up. Those wheels of fire. I can imagine just the fire. If, if you look in space, when the comet goes across the sky, that the tail of that comet is thousands of light years away. But you can see it. The comet that you see, the light, by the time the light reaches Earth and you see that trail of fire in, the, in space, it's already gone. God's passport. He's been traveling some places. And John saw all of the stamps on his passport. His fiery eyes. His, his, braze, his bronze feet that had been in the furnace. With the three Hebrew boys. His bright face that shone, that shone down 
and expose Paul's heart. All of this is in his passport. So although John's description tells us of God's travels, he now sees God stationary. He sees him in one locale, but he's still moving because he said, I saw him in the midst of the seven candlesticks. And this is not, some people draw, when they do prophecy, they draw this candlestick as one candelabra with the one in the middle and three on each side. But these are individual candlesticks and he's in the center of them. And he's, what he's doing is he's moving and making sure, remember the, the job of the priest was to keep the fire burning. Now we call Jesus the high priest. The high priest didn't do the job of the normal priest. The temple priest and the high priest had different duties. But God didn't think that he was so mighty and high and lifted up that he couldn't do what the regular ministers did. So the, the temple of the Old Testament, he's doing all of the job functions. He's the one that received that that lights the fire on the brazen altar. He's the one that receives the sacrifice from the people. He's the one that lays his hand on it. He's the one that does the slitting of the throat. He's the one that goes in and, and sprinkles the blood and washes in the basin. And he's the one that enters into the holy place and makes sure that there's bread on the table and makes sure that the incense are, are burning and makes sure that there's oil in the lamp. He is the one that is beyond the veil who is ready to speak with you face to face as a father does his son as a friend does his friend he is the only one that's doing all this at the same time so why can't i trust him why do i put my faith in so many folk who i i are you even within the veil i'm trusting you and i don't even know if you're in touch with him when i could be in touch with him for myself all that Jesus did to give us access directly to the Father, we turn around and say, I don't want direct access. We're like the children of Israel. We don't want to hear his voice. We, we, we give us a king. Give us somebody to, to, to speak on his behalf. So we go back into slavery mentality. But he's the, he's the temple priest. Isaiah 12 and 6 says, cry out and shout. Thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel. He says, in the midst, in the midst of you. The midst means the nearest part or the center. Now, you got to take this beyond just if we were in a circle and we set a, a center point and he's in the midst of us in this room. But you've got to make things individual, that he is actually in the midst of who I am. And from that place, he is able to work from the inside out. So we often tell people to keep their lamps trimmed and burning bright, the seven candlesticks. This can easily be accomplished by allowing God to do the work within us. But we are the lamp, and he is the priest. So it's not our job to keep our light shining because you can't shine without oil. He's the only one that can give the oil. Bezalel is the only one that can make the oil for the temple. You can't make it. No other man can make it. So if I'm the lamp, it is not my duty to light myself. 
It is the duty of the priest to keep oil on me. The light which Christians are required to shed on the gloom of a sinful world is not their own, but we have a borrowed light. We have no glow of our own. All of our glamour comes from him who created us. The light which they possess has been kindled within them by the father of lights. Now, John's frame of mind. Now, he, he's seen all of this. He's seen a Lord that he, he thought looked familiar to him. This is the thing I don't get. They, they walked with him for three and a half years. Saw him every day. Spent time with him all day, every day. They didn't have part-time jobs and then come and, and work for the Lord in the evenings. They were with him all the time. They, they, they slept under the same roof. Three and a half years. I could see somebody that, that I knew in high, I mean in elementary school, ain't seen them in 20 years and say, they look familiar. John, is that you? But John, he says, I, it kind of looks like Jesus, but I'm not sure. Now, he hadn't been gone from Jesus that long. I mean, from the time that he died on the cross, they were with him in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified. They were with him, praying with him, or falling asleep on him while he prayed. Three days later, after he rose from the dead, he walks in, and they don't even recognize him. But here he says, now this looks like the son of man. Now remember, John is the one who laid his chest in Jesus' bosom as he talked to him. Like a baby lays on his, on her, on his or her mother. This is what he saw him as. Walking in the midst of his servants, the lampstands. Someone, he says, it looked like the son of man. It looked like the one I laid my, my chest on. I mean, my head on his chest. His head and the hair, white like wool. Eyes like fire. Feet, furnace. His voice like the waters. So what was John's mindset when he saw all of this? He says, I was in the spirit. You got to be in the spirit if you want to see God in his splendor. Being in the spirit means that your influence comes from the spirit. It doesn't come from the organization that you're affiliated with. It doesn't come from your mom or your daddy. There comes a time when you got to learn how to get into the spirit on your own. So he says, I was in the spirit. The blessing of God comes in the use of his appointed means. This is very important. Supernatural communications begin where the highest effort of ordinary grace ends. Supernatural communications begin where the highest effort of ordinary grace ends. When you've done all that you know how to do to love God, Grace can only go even so far with him. There, there's a point of breaking when you exceed, when you go from grace to presence. 
and John was here because he was in the spirit. God honored his Sabbath, and he honored the prayerful endeavors of his servant by his revelations at that time. There is a spirit of the Sabbath with all, which all believers should seek to attain, and which, when cultivated to the utmost, will bring them well nigh to the borders of inspiration and to the gate of heaven. So God has been traveling this globe throughout the ages. We see him as beautiful because of where he's been throughout time. He becomes as beautiful as he is to us because we know what he's done. This is where you got to educate yourself on what he's done. You got to pay attention even within your own life what he's done. Don't forget what he's done. Appreciate what he's done. So in ages past, he has been many things to many people. But the Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So his only preoccupation now is with the candles and the stars. We must muster up enough faith to trust in him. We got to believe that all of these places, if we look on the Lord's passport that he's been throughout time, as much as recorded as uh, is recorded in scripture, We've got to believe that we don't leave those testimonies with Moses, with Noah, with Lot, with Abraham, with Paul. We have to bring them into our experience. So we have to see him as John saw him, that he has me and I'm a star in his hand and that he's walking in the midst of me and oil putting, making sure that oil is in my lamp on a continuous basis. We have to trust that that's his preoccupation. That he's not too busy for me. That, you know, he gave me the Holy Ghost and just sent me on my way. But a lot of times that's pretty much how we feel. I, I got this. What, what do I have? What am I supposed to do with this? How am I supposed to cultivate it? And the one that gave us the spirit, it's, it's like that word. He's the expositor of it. It's like I said last night, I take a friend and introduce him to Jesus and say, all right, you met the Savior. Now come with me. Let me tell you what to do. Let me tell you what his words mean. He wrote the book, but I'm not going to let him explain what he meant by his own book. You got to listen to me. So we, we've got to trust and make sure that we're in his hand, not in somebody else's hand. In his hand. And like last night, we both uh, talked about God will give you wisdom as you go through what you go through, but you got to ask him. And you've got to be able to get alone and, and be willing to suffer the loneliness of being with him, which is not lonely at all. And you have your, you have your season when you come back and you actually have fellowship, because I'm, I'm not of the belief that you don't need nobody but Jesus, because he gave us relationships. Oh, just all I need is the Lord. <laughs> That's not biblical. He gave us relationships. The thing is, you, you, you've got to know what you need. You have to allow God to minister to you. Right. And when you and, and use your discernment to identify the foolishness, because right. we, we, we don't have too much time. We already trying to redeem the time we lost. We don't need to be wasting more time on top of the time we trying to redeem. 
So we have to be very serious about our relationship with God. And it's not just for you to be happy. Because he can do that. He can make you happy. But it's for him to use you to make somebody else and be a blessing to somebody else.